This is the waves. 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 Welcome to the Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and begging people to stop trying to make Ted Bundy sexy. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the things we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Shayna Roth, producer of this show, The Waves, and author of Cold Cases, A True Crime Collection. Writing Cold Cases and especially promoting it when it came out about a year ago, I honestly couldn't stop thinking about whether the book that I had put out into the world was for lack of a better word, a problem. It's a collection of 10 unsolved cases ranging from mass murders to heists, but it was the murders and disappearances chapters that I kept worrying about. Chapters about JonBenet Ramsey, Natalie Holloway, and Elizabeth Short, also known as the Black Dahlia specifically. And by problem, I mean I was concerned that I was contributing to a culture that was out of control. True crime has become something of an industry. I mean, there's conferences, live tapings of true crime podcasts. And if you type in true crime on Etsy, you will get more than 23,000 hits with shirts, candles, bookmarks, mugs, stickers, cards, and more that say things like true crime, glass of wine in bed by nine, and just here to establish an alibi. There's, There's just tons of this stuff out there. And true crime itself has fans that range from sort of the casual to the chaotic and true crime podcasts, books, documentaries, and series. I mean, they are just all over the place. I'm a former prosecutor, and I have always been fascinated by crime. I love mysteries, always have. But as I was writing, I kept seeing patterns that were concerning to me. So in a lot of the cases, particularly ones that were where the victims were women, usually white women, those were the cases where I found the most research. They had the most documentaries and podcasts and things like that about them. And this is something that I think is is evolving. There are more and more true crime documentaries that are focused on things like wrongful imprisonment and rectifying, as Gwen Ifill once put it, the missing white woman syndrome. But with each chapter, my feelings about this subject that I had loved you know, I, I became more and more conflicted. And so today, we're going to talk this out. And I am here with Rebecca Lavoy. Rebecca, you are one of the hosts of a very popular, long-running podcast called Crime Writers On. And you are also a true crime author. So I have to ask to start, why did you agree to come on the show? <laughs> well, first of all, it's one of my favorite topics, talking about what is right and wrong about true crime. But yes, I have co-written four true crime books, pre-true crime boom era books, by the way, that I'm hoping will ride the wave of the true crime boom. Plus, uh, I host a podcast on which we actually look at the media around true crime. So we're not just discussing the cases and discussing the documentaries and podcasts made from the cases. We're actually talking about how they are presented, the journalism around them, the ethics around them, the the media itself, whether or not it's well-produced and engaging, uh, and why perhaps it was made. So I honestly can say there is no more qualified person to have this conversation with than I. I can honestly (laughs) say that. And that's exactly why I was like, okay, I really hope Rebecca can do this because I need help in my book life crisis. We are going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to talk about what makes true crime enticing, whether or not women are truly its primary devotees, and more. You're listening to The Waves.
I feel like the true crime boom, wave, explosion, whatever you want to call it, can essentially be broken up into two parts. There's BS and AS, before serial and after serial. This is a global tail link prepaid call from Adnan Sayed. An inmate at a Maryland Correctional Facility. From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's Serial, one story told week by week. I'm Sarah Koenig. Serial, for the few people that don't know, is the podcast that launched in 2014. And while it's not exclusively a true crime show, the first season was all about the murder of a Baltimore high school senior named Heyman Lee and whether the man who was convicted of her murder, Adnan Syed, actually did it. Now, this wasn't the first massive true crime event, but it really seemed to signal a shift in the genre and kick off this wave of true crime everything, especially podcasts, which, if we want to bring it full circle, is now being satirized in the upcoming Hulu show Only Murderers in the Building. The show stars Martin Short, Steve Martin, and Selena Gomez as three people that try to solve a murder that happened in their apartment building while also creating a true crime podcast, as you do. Tim Kono's death has been ruled a homicide, and apparently one of you jerk-offs did it. I can't stop thinking about this. Neither can I. We should do our own true crime podcast. We're going to go down there and look around for clues. You want to come? Do I want to break into a dead guy's apartment and go through all his shit? Sounds like an afternoon. Rebecca, what is it about this genre that gets people so invested? (laughs) I don't think that, you know, that the term true crime boom is necessarily accurate so much as the true crime investment. You sort of hit the nail on the head there. And you talked about serial and what happened with Serial was that it was a true crime story that, you know, very much centered a wrongful potential wrongful conviction as a center of the story rather than the victim or the perpetrator. I mean, people are can argue either way on that. But really, it was Sarah Koenig's story and what she learned about this very complicated case that, you know, was probably mishandled by, by the way, cops who have since Serial been revealed to have been involved in a lot of uh, wrong handlings of a lot of cases. But I do think the intimacy of the podcast medium in particular really, really helped here. So Sarah invited the listener in the way the story was told ostensibly in real time. I think as producers, we know that some of it was and some of it wasn't in real time really added a layer to a genre that is already incredibly engaging. I mean, there are true crime stories everywhere. I mean, just tell the folks at Dateline, just tell every uh, prominent filmmaker from, you know, Martin Scorsese to Alex Gibney. True crime is everywhere. It's always been everywhere. But I really, really think what has drawn women in in particular right now is the way the stories are told and the intimacy of the medium in which they've become popular. Speaking of, of women and true crime, Whenever I see articles or things like that about true crime, a lot of them tend to focus on, particularly over the last few years, how this is like a women thing. Uh, Recently in February, Saturday Night Live even had a sketch slash song called Murder Shows that was all about this. Finally, he's gone. I have the whole night to unwind. And do a little self-care. The only way I know how. I'm gonna watch a murder show, murder show. I'm gonna watch a murder show. Netflix, Showtime, HBO, and Daylight. Murder show, murder show. I'm gonna watch a murder show. YouTube, Hulu. 
That's my favorite thing. Talk to me about this sort of fan base. It seems like it is a lot. It is very much dominated by women. You disagree on that, though. One of the things I think about true crime podcasts in particular is that they really do fall into two camps. One camp is a piece of reporting or storytelling around a a true crime event or events. Another camp is the meta camp, which is friends sitting around talking about true crimes, uh, real stories, uh, travesties of justice. To me, that genre doesn't actually like really count as true crime. I know that that's the that's the genre it's in in the catalog of the podcast directory. But that's not we're not learning anything new. It really just is about feelings. Right, and a lot right. of those shows are hosted by women and are actually made for women. So, of course, women are going to predominantly be the fans of these shows. But I don't think a really well-reported true crime story has a gender necessarily. I do think that in the past, nobody actually cared uh, what women liked or listened to or watched. <laughs> yeah. So things weren't necessarily made with women in mind. You know, I mentioned Errol Morris before, Thin Blue Line, Joe Berlinger, Paradise Lost, uh, The Staircase, Fatal Vision, In Cold Blood. I mean, these are all male authors and directors bringing true crime stories to the front of pop culture. But at the time, nobody was thinking like, let's make this so that anybody other than a white male who's 35 will like it. I mean, that was the key demographic for media for years and years and years. And now we have a form of media that's directly monetizable, where the audience is directly measurable in real time. You know who is listening, how long they're listening, who they are. So that has really changed the game, I think, and just and opened the door for women to be included. It seems like when we think about true crime, when we think about it as being trashy, the chatty podcast, the sweatshirts with, you know, Ted Bundy's face on them, the mugs, things like that. That's when we think of women and true crime. But when we think of it in more highbrow of like a big Hollywood produced film, we think of it as, oh, well, this is for everybody. And I think that's one of the areas where the true crime genre gets a little bit confusing for people because I think a lot of people are interested in it. But when we think of it just in terms of like this sort of trashy way, we think, well, it's for women and not for everybody. When really, I mean, I don't know that there's a lot of people out there that you could talk to, male or female, who would say, hey, I've got a mystery. They're not going to be at least somewhat interested. And that's (laughs) what a lot of this is. It's it's, it's mysteries and it's solving mysteries. Yeah. And, you know, I feel personally just so grossed out by the fact that there is this giant commercial uprising of really what is irresponsible Mm -hmm. and kind of gross uh, media that is largely centered around and made by white women. I feel like it's really sullied the genre, honestly, and and sullied the brand of the genre. I don't want them to have the name, though. I really don't. I really wish that there would be a new name for that, like crime trash or, you know, uh, faux crime or something. I don't know. But it, it really bothers me that that is the image, so much so that when you listen to a really well-reported true crime story, you know, one of the things that I helped work on when it was being made in my day job was the podcast Bear Brook. And there's this temptation, even of the host of Bear Brook, Jason Moon, to always start with, I'm not a crime reporter, but... I'm not into true crime, but it's like, yes, you are. You are. What you're trying to do is distinguish yourself from trash. But you are a crime reporter if, in fact, you are reporting a crime. And you are, in fact, a true crime fan if you've ever enjoyed any story uh, that is revolves around or is based on a crime, which is almost 
every story. Well, even in the beginning of Serial, like the first things that Sarah Koenig is saying is, I'm not even a crime reporter. This story just sort of fell into my lap. Bullshit. And she, yeah, exactly. Bullshit. And she goes out of her way to kind of make it seem like it's not just like a true crime thing. But it is. It very yes, much and, is. And she's also not telling the truth because she reported a couple of very meaty This American Life stories, which were true crime stories. It was a notable one about a wrongful confession and the read technique. And that was a full episode of This American Life. So to say that she's not a crime reporter, I don't know what people think that means does it mean that they people have re- re- report on crime exclusively like there are, are really very few jobs it's unless you work at a huge outlet where you only do like one thing but yeah i just i call total bullshit on that and i also think it's insulting to those of us who have honestly like done really good work and made a living on and are responsible about our true crime journalism so yeah i call bs on that one well and that's the thing i mean it's an important job Crime journalism is very important, and it's not just about if it bleeds, it leads type of journalism. Maybe that's sort of a part of where the trashiness comes from, is that sort of idea, even well before Serial, of we just want the blood, guts, and gore to bring in a massive audience. But being a crime journalist in a very respectable sense, I mean, that's how you get stories exposing police brutality. That's how you get stories, in some cases, helping to solve cold cases. I'll say, you know, I think the greatest true crime podcast ever made is season two of In the Dark from APM. Um, They exposed a wrongful conviction of a man who was tried six times for a crime he did not commit. They exposed a dirty prosecutor. They did a lot of data journalism about jury selection. And their reporting made it into a brief that was presented in front of the Supreme Court that won (laughs) for Curtis Flower's side. So if you look at that, um, that's true crime. There is nothing about that that is not true crime because that's what it is. I sort of define the before serial and after serial moment, aside from the fact that it attracted audience, as the change in the way we are telling true crime stories and what we are focusing on. I think if it were not for serial... And all of the media that spun off from it, including my own show, do you think that a regular, you know, person in your local grocery store would have any sense of like what a Brady violation is or any of this sort of wrongful conviction stuff or false confession stuff? There has been so much good work done by stories like Serial in changing the conversation. True crime used to be just Dateline. A bad guy did a thing. He tried to cover it up. Here's how he was caught. Now it is an entirely different kind of story and a much more important story. I will say this, though, particularly as somebody who was a prosecutor, it did raise up this idea of sort of the armchair detective. And I feel like those have become a very problematic subset of true crime. I mean, every once in a while, you get a very qualified, smart person who latches onto a crime like a Michelle McNamara, whose book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, her work to expose who was the Golden State Killer is is phenomenal. But you also have, more often than not, people who have seen a few documentaries, have watched a few shows, and all of a sudden they're like, well, I know more than all of these detectives in all of these different shows, particularly given that we have the internet, we have chat rooms, we have these, you know, groups. It can get really messy when those people get too involved in spaces that they shouldn't be. Oh, yeah. It's it's gross. And they also behave irresponsibly. There's a complete misunderstanding of what FOIA 
should be used for oh my and God, can yes. be used for. <laughs> There's a complete misunderstanding. One of the things that makes me crazy, and sometimes you'll see even qualified journalists uh, who you know work in public radio or who work have worked in newspapers and are making a podcast, but it's something you see particular with more amateur non-journalist podcasters is they'll say the police won't tell me or the police refuse to return my call or the prosecutor won't tell me. They can't. Right, right. <laughs> like, like, literally, they cannot. They will be fired. They will have very bad yes. things happen to them if they do. Yes, and, and you can disagree with whether or not that should be a rule, but in most places, it is a rule. In most places, you cannot access documents or get information about an open investigation. And yeah, sometimes, rarely, police do use that rule, and they just don't close something just so that they don't have to say anything, but that is not the rule. That is the exception, and it, it really makes me crazy. And of course, the other thing that these amateur investigators tend to do is irresponsibly connect people to a case that they may or may not have had anything to do with and people who are not in the public sphere as having been a suspect and it makes me completely sick especially in a story that's ostensibly about a wrongful conviction when you have a podcaster naming other people that he thinks definitely did the crime in that true crime sphere there is a lot of room for irresponsibility. And there are a lot of irresponsible actors. And it's not even just the people who are just sort of partaking in this, just sort of regular people. It's also in Hollywood quite a bit. Recently, two, not one, but two Ted Bundy movies were released. And there was a bit of a a shakeup on the internet about it where people were just like, can we stop making Ted Bundy movies? Particularly given that every time there's a Ted Bundy movie, There's a very handsome, charismatic man playing Ted Bundy, and it furthers this idea that he's just this very charismatic, handsome, genius man instead of this awful, disgusting creep. And it's one of those things that, like, we just cannot seem to let go of. Hmm. I see something else, though. I mean, for I don't want to say for everyone there is this, but more and more for every crappy Ted Bundy documentary, there's uh, a murder on Middle Beach or a film like the Netflix film Unbelievable, uh, which is an incredible scripted version of a true crime story based on a magazine article about women who were raped and people didn't believe them. And then these two female cops from two different states got together and actually found out there was a serial rapist starring Merritt Weaver. It's a series and and Tony Collette. I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It seems to me like People are listening. I mean, they. I, I really think they are. And maybe it's because they're running out of serial killers to make things out of. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but it does seem like more and more there are creative uh, takes on true crime. There are cases we didn't know about. So I don't know. I have hope that that will die down. We're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to get back into this and we're going to focus on where the victims and the people who are involved in these cases play into all of this. But if you like what you're hearing and you're enjoying The Waves, we would love it if you would like and subscribe to The Waves wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear more from Rebecca and myself on another topic, check out our Waves Plus segment, Gateway Feminism, where today Rebecca and I talk about one thing that helped make us feminists. I'll be talking about Nancy Drew. Rebecca, what will you be talking about? Monica Quartermain from General Hospital. (music) 
as I was preparing for this episode, I came across a New York Post article titled, Hollywood Needs to Stop Glamorizing Horrific Serial Killers. And part of it gets into what we were just talking about before the break, that, you know, these are people who have done horrific things and they tend to get glamorized in movies and TV shows and they're played by handsome, charismatic men. And this was specifically about the Zac Efron, Ted Bundy movie called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, which came out a couple years ago. But in that article, there was a quote that stood out to me. We're tired of turning on the news and seeing his face, Lisa Little, a childhood friend of Bundy's 12-year-old victim, Kimberly Leach, told First Coast News. The fact that they're making this new movie outrages me, especially because they're using Zac Efron, who's so cute and attractive. Now, this is where, time and again, I run into trouble with the genre, which is the victims and their voices, you know, kind of being lost in these stories that really they should be the center of and who they are should be the center of. But in a lot of cases, I feel like they're treated more as as these sort of objects of the thing that happened to them as opposed to fully formed people. And this was something that when I was writing cold cases... I really got into my head about, and I tried to address it. When I did the chapter about Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, I called her the patron saint of mutilated women because she sort of seemed to me to be one of the first instances of gorgeous white woman mutilated and just sort of having everything about her exposed in the press. And so I tried to spend time with her, address what the media made her out to be versus this sort of real person that she actually was. And I especially tried to use her real name, Elizabeth Short. But throughout the book, in various chapters, you see me sort of grappling with this. In fact, one review called me borderline preachy. (laughs) And, you know, I was just constantly raising this question of why are we so invested in this victim? Particularly, I think of like Natalie Holloway, who was, you know, sort of the perfect victim, blonde hair, honor student, young. I mean, she was really ripe for the media storm that followed her disappearance. And I just kept grappling with, am I just sort of contributing to this? I'm talking about it. I'm raising missing white woman syndrome in the chapter, but am I just sort of furthering this? And am I not being helpful to anybody? And so I wanted to talk to you, Rebecca, about all of this. So I guess to start off, how do you feel about how true crime treats the victims? Are we, are we getting any better? It really depends on the kind of story you're telling and what story you're telling. Sometimes I would could make a strong case that it's inappropriate to actually center the victim in a story where the victim story actually ended and the story begins with that victim story ending. I mean, it's a rub, right? Because I find the whole Amanda Knox, uh, Matt Damon movie thing really interesting for a variety of reasons. And I do think there's a lot of gray area here. However, sometimes the story is actually not about the victim. I mean, Tell Martin Scorsese that he should have centered all of those mafia victims, people who were killed by hitmen in Goodfellas instead of the people who killed them. Go ahead. Tell him that and let's see what kind of movie he makes. Right. It's not the story you're trying to tell. I mean, the the Fatal Vision story by Joe McGinnis, obviously problematic issues there as well with the journalism there. But the story was about whether or not the guy is lying, whether or not he did it. What would the book be if it were about his wife and kids? Would it just be a biography of them that ends with them being brutally murdered? It it can be really tricky. There are times, however, though, where 
it is only appropriate <laughs> to put the victim uh, in the center of the story. You know, I think a lot about something like one of my favorite podcasts of last year, Through the Cracks, uh, which was about a missing girl from Washington, D.C., and her story is the reason why the story is being told, because she wouldn't have gone missing if her story wasn't what it was. So there is a balance. I do think some journalists are better at it than others. One big nod to my friend Amber Hunt, whose first season of Accused, another one of my favorite true crime podcasts, does a beautiful job centering the victim in a way that's balanced, appropriate, and doesn't take away from the what happened after, which is the real story here. I'm so glad you mentioned Amanda Knox because she has really come into the media forefront a little bit lately because of the new movie starring Matt Damon that came out called Stillwater, which is kind of sort of loosely based on what happened to her, but it changes a lot of the facts around. And she was on an an episode of the Vox podcast today explained uh, sort of talking about what this and really many of the other true crime stories about her have been like for her. That whole new direction fictionalized away my innocence. And furthermore, was not a new imagining of the story. That is just the case that the prosecution brought to court Hmm. and is the same sort of story that I encounter in the real world where people go, you know what? There's just something about her. I bet she's guilty kind of sort of somehow. I bet she knows something. She was somehow involved, even if she didn't plunge the knife, even if she's technically innocent, she's probably in some way responsible somehow for this crime. And that's what is presented in the film. And that is to the detriment of my character and my reputation. And that has a consequence. It's not a new imagination. It's it's not like they decided to like go off in a completely new direction. They didn't. They reinforced a false narrative that I have been battling for over a decade now. One of the things that I tend to grapple with is the fact that in a lot of cases either because they are deceased or because they are considered public figures, these people are not able to consent to their stories being told. So they lose that agency. And as people who have already been victimized by a horrific crime to then further not be able to consent to how their story is portrayed, to me, it feels like it can it can be like a re-victimization for these people or for the deceased, for their families. And And I've seen articles that are like, you know, we shouldn't have any true crime, (laughs) that monetizing on these people's pain is just terrible overall. And I don't think that's the case. But it is something where you have to be so careful. And I just don't think that a lot of documentaries, podcasts and whatnot are. I have a question for you. Yeah. Why do you have to be more careful about that than you do a war film? in which people die, in which we are not centering necessarily the people who died. We are telling the story of what happened that led to and then what happened after those deaths. This is the only genre where this comes into question. Again, mafia movies, it never comes into question. It seems as if there are rules that people are applying to true crime, that they are not applying uniformly to other kinds of media that are based on the stories of real people or that are directly telling the stories of real people. And there's also a real lack of understanding about what ownership of one's story means. By the way, the Amanda Knox thing made me think I I think about one of the books that I wrote, and I think about it all the time, the ways that I would write it differently today versus the way I wrote it 10 years ago. And it it is a thinker. And she she was innocent. 
And she, you know, was vilified by the media and still is being vilified by a huge faction of people on the Internet who are bananas. And, yeah, it's awful for her that this movie was made and is so closely tied to her. Like like the promotional stuff sort of is like the Amanda Knox-ish, right? Right. That being said, she doesn't actually own the fictionalized version of her story. She doesn't. And you can think that that's gross. You can think that it's fine. It's just true. She doesn't actually own that. Yeah. I think that the war story comparison is interesting. I think it's different where true crime becomes different is because it does tend, I mean, you name people, you know, you name the victims usually in these stories and and you get the details of what happened to them without necessarily talking about who they were as people. Whereas with war films, it's, you know, it, it's very blanketed. Usually we don't list all of the people who died. Maybe we should, but I, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm trying to struggling with do you that think, comparison. Do you yeah. think true crime can win, though? Do you think that if someone told a true crime story and didn't name the victim for the same way that... Do you think do you think people would be happier with that? No. They would not be happier about it. Listen, there's a lot of attention paid to this genre because women like it. I'm, I'm just being straight with you. The world is a sexist place. If women like a thing, people are going to be more critical about it than if men like a thing. I feel that very strongly. I have seen that in the conversation around this. I am the first person to tell you that a lot of these, quote, true crime podcasts where it's just people Wikipediaing a, a crime, just talking out of their butts about what they think happened, they suck. They are bad for the genre. They're actually, I think, bad for you as a listener in many ways. Like, I'm with you on excoriating those folks. But I just I can't see anything other than like a tremendous amount of sexism in this strong desire to find something wrong with true crime reporting now that so many stories are being made with female audiences in mind. I, I, I frankly just think it's really sexist. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't really considered that sort of angle of it. So you think that a lot of the coverage like I feel like, you know, maybe every few months there's an article that comes out of like the true crime genre. Is it okay? Is it harmful? And then I read those and I'm like, I don't know. Let me rethink my entire life. So you think that maybe that constant aggressive, you know, thinking on this and examining of it, 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 there's a sexism to that. 100%. I mean, have you ever heard anybody giving Joe Berlinger by name shit about Paradise Lost? No. No, no, no. And that was a a film that was a series that was centered around the people who were accused of being perpetrators of a terrible crime. It was not centered around the victims of a crime. You don't really hear a whole lot of criticism. I mean, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood is called literature, right? It's not called Trashy True Crime. Uh, Errol Morris, The Thin Blue Line. You don't hear about Errol Morris sort of like sullying, uh, you know, the world with centering these cops instead of the victims of all these crimes. I mean, I I mean, even like the fictionalized takes on true crime, Zodiac. What is it called? It's called Zodiac. It's not called, you know, the victims of the Zodiac killer. No one's saying to David Fincher, listen, uh, this isn't good. You know, you're centering somebody and it's harmful to society. No, they aren't, because that was not made with a female audience in mind. And therefore, we are less critical of it, period. But I do wonder if I mean, I have not been the victim of a crime. I mean, there's there's got to be. There's got to be some level of of angst or frustration, I think, for people who are family members or know the victims in these cases to to constantly have, particularly in the famous ones, to, to just, you know, turn on the TV or see a movie coming out and being like, oh, my God, here we go again and having to relive that. And I just wonder if it's something that maybe the genre should aspire to 
And I don't know how you do it better, but maybe do it. Maybe we just got to get rid of the trash. I don't know. <laughs> well, there is a thing, too, about making a story for the right reason, the why a story is being made. Now, I can tell you there is no reason why there should have been two Ted Bundy movies in the last year or two. There's no reason why, except for the fact that, you know, whoever made them and invested them thought they would be popular, right? There's nothing new. There's no new breaking news. There's no new take. It's just more of the same story being told again. So if there is a why, uh, I mean, nobody asks to be in the news, whether it's the victim of a crime or a sex scandal or embezzlement, like nobody wants to be in the news. But the bottom line is, once you have a case in the public record, you actually are ripe for public consumption, not by your own doing often, but like that is unfortunately the way it is. And I in no way think victims of crimes are wrong for having these feelings. That being said, if there is a good reason to tell a particular crime story, then I think that supersedes the potential hurt feelings of somebody related to the victim, especially if there is a larger issue that the storyteller can shine a light on, if there's a potential wrongful conviction at the center of the case, if there's a cultural problem that this story is very illustrative of. I don't know. I have a hard time, just as with other kinds of journalism, saying that that doesn't supersede, you know, sort of the public good that the journalism can do. I think this would be a good time for us to give our recommendations. And this time we're going to specifically share some really good pieces of true crimes, ones that were made for good reasons and, you know, really add to to the culture. So, Rebecca, you start. What are your recommendations? My first recommendation is my favorite true crime documentary that's been made in the last couple of years. And that's saying a lot because there have been quite a few good ones. But my favorite one is Murder on Middle Beach. It was a four-part series that aired on HBO. And the reason I love it so much, well, reasons, one is that the man who made it, Madison Hamburg, he started making it as a student film when he was in college. So through the course of the four episodes, not only do you see him grow up on film, but you also see the craft improve throughout the four episodes. Second, his what he's doing in this film is investigating the murder of his own mother. So he can do things that no one else telling this story can do. He can secretly tape the cops, a super no-no for any other kind of journalist or storyteller or amateur podcaster. He can uh, interview his own family members. He has unprecedented access to every part of the story. And the other thing that I love about it is that it's also really about being an American family in a way that I haven't seen before on film, sort of the ripe dysfunction, the fact that this man's mother had potentially multiple people who wanted to kill her, like really makes you think about the dysfunction of your own family in a strange way. Anyway, I can't say enough good things about this documentary. I'll talk about it with anybody who wants. Feel free to tweet me about it. So I'm going to recommend a sort of true crime-ish podcast because they could not legally say that these pyramid schemes were illegal. Uh, It's called The Dream. It's a great, fun podcast. I'm a big fan of things that are – of encouraging people to look beyond murder – for their for their true crime desires and this is this ticks a lot of boxes it's just a fascinating deep dive into those different pyramid schemes that you're constantly getting inundated with on your Facebook page and why they're harmful and sort of who pays the price of those 
And then sort of as a bonus, I would also recommend Decoder Rings, Slate's Decoder Rings 2018 episode called Clown Panic. And this was a really great episode that digs into that sort of weird moment in time when people were wearing clown costumes and being super creepy in playgrounds and other places. And it kind of gets a little bit into the crime because people were arrested for it. And there was just a lot going on with that. So those are two things that I would absolutely recommend. All right. Well, thank you for doing two so that I can do two as well. Yes, please. The documentary that I often call the Citizen Kane of true crime is season one of The Staircase, the original 12 episodes. It's about novelist Michael Peterson being accused of the murder of his wife, Kathleen. And it is an unprecedented look at the inside of a well-funded defense. It's completely fascinating. It is gorgeously made. Uh, At the end of every episode, you change your mind about whether or not you think he did it or not. So it's incredibly suspenseful. The stuff they capture on film is just like unbelievable. And if you are a person who likes a mystery with a ton of oh shit moments, the staircase is 100% where it's at. Never mind the fact that it's full of a bunch of compelling characters and asks a lot of questions about the criminal justice system, the way uh, people of different sexual orientations are treated, the veracity of some evidentiary techniques that turn out to be completely bullshit. Anyway, that's the staircase, the first series. The second series of the staircase Kind of boring. Cannot recommend the first one enough. And as a bonus, I am going to give a shout out to one of my favorite podcasts from last year. It's called Canary from the Washington Post. Uh, It just won a National Murrow Award, so I'm not alone in loving it. In it, reporter Amy Britton uses a story around sexual assault. First of all, there's an incredible twist at the end of episode one that I cannot spoil, so I'm going to be vague. She uses the story around a sexual assault to explore how difficult it is to find out whether accusations are true. And in doing that, she shows the difficulties around trying to do journalism about this, trying to tackle it in the criminal justice system. She asks a lot of questions about why women aren't believed. And it is a journey. I love it so, so much. And as much as a podcast about sexual assault can be entertaining, it is incredibly entertaining. And I mean that like you want to listen to the next episode when you finish an episode. So for as much as we were saying that that there's a lot of trash out there, there's lots of good out there. So we encourage everyone to find some good true crime. Okay, that's our show this week. The Waves is produced by me, Shana Roth. Susan Matthews is our editorial director with June Thomas providing oversight and moral support. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. We'd also love to hear from you. Email the show at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.